If you got a Bible this morning, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We continue to work our way through the Gospel of Mark together. And we find ourselves this morning in a text in Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 1 to 10. And I'll read it for us. And if you don't have a copy of it there on your couch or around your dining room table, uh, you can follow it along, along with us on the screen. It'll be at the bottom of the screen as I read this morning. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, we'll read down through verse 10 together. It says, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having, having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmantha. Now we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, taking a look at the person and work of Jesus, really getting a big picture of who Jesus is. Because we see Jesus' character displayed for us in all these stories that Mark records about Jesus' life and ministry. And listen, if there is one thing that you and I need right now more than anything, it's a big picture of Jesus. That He is bigger than all of our challenges, that He's bigger than all of our circumstances, that He's bigger than every condition that we might find ourselves to be in right now. And so as we've unfolded the person of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen different aspects of who He is, His character, of His power, of how He has worked and continues to work in the lives of the people of Israel and now even outside of the people of Israel as He's traveling in a predominantly Gentile region. And so we continue to see Jesus held up for us by the Gospel of Mark as this massive individual whose life and ministry has revolutionized the landscape of human history. And so as we see Jesus on the pages of Mark's Gospel, my hope this morning is that you would see a big Jesus. And as we've seen His character unfolded for us through these stories, this morning we come to highlight this aspect of Jesus' character as we consider His compassion. So if I had to title this text this morning, I would title it The Compassion of Jesus. Now, this is the second of the feeding miracles in Mark's gospel. Earlier in Mark chapter 6, we saw another account in which Jesus fed a massive crowd that had gathered to listen to him teach. And that while some believe that these are the same story, just recounted in two different places, I think there's good reason to see them as separate accounts. This took place not just once in Jesus' ministry, but twice. Let me give you a few of those reasons. First of all, in the first account in Mark 6, there were about 5,000 men there who were revolutionaries who wanted to overthrow Roman occupation and oppression and cause Jesus to rise up as this revolutionary leader who would be like a guerrilla military type of a leader. Here is a different setting. You've got about 4,000 people in a predominantly Gentile region who didn't have the issues with the Romans in the same way that the Jews did. In addition, in the previous story, there were five loaves and two fish. In this story, there are seven loaves and a few small fish. In the previous story, the people had spent one day in the wilderness, while in this story, they had been with Jesus now three days in the wilderness. In the previous story, it was springtime as the grass was green and beginning to emerge, and they were in north of Galilee. 
in this particular story, there's no mention of the time of the year, and it is southeast. It's located in a region southeast of Galilee. In the previous story, there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. This one, seven baskets full. In the previous story, there was one prayer. This one, two prayers. In the previous story, it was a mostly Jewish audience, and this one, a mostly Gentile audience. And then finally, listen, later on in Mark chapter 8, and verses 19 and 20, Jesus himself clearly states that there were two feedings. There were two times in which he fed the multitudes as they were gathered. And so there was, this is not the same story that took place in Mark 6. This is a different instance, a different circumstance, a different situation in which we find Jesus to be feeding a multitude once again. And so the question for us, we saw last time whenever we looked at this text, is that the, the, the Messiah that we need, the deliverance that we need is greater than the deliverance that we want because there are worse things in us than there are around us. That's what we said from the last text several weeks ago. So what do we see in this text that uniquely highlights the compassion of Jesus. And I want to show you three things and then then give us two responses to it. So the first thing that I think we see is that rather than being indifferent to our needs, Jesus is moved by them. So Jesus is moved by our needs. Listen, in verse 1, we're introduced to the needs of the people who were gathered to hear Jesus teach for the third straight day. So it's like Jesus is putting on a conference, okay? Jesus, the best conference speaker in human history, he's holding a conference out in a very desolate place, out in the wilderness. And it says that for the third straight day, Jesus had been teaching and the people had nothing to eat. And then in verse 2, we're introduced to the fact that Jesus responds to that need that the people have that he can very clearly see by saying, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. See, again, in the previous story, whenever Jesus looks at all of these people who come clamoring for a revolution, it says that he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd and he begins to teach them his response. His compassionate response to the needs of the people was to refocus them as he taught them. The compassionate response in this text from Jesus to the people is not to teach them, but to feed them. Now, the root word from which we we derive the the, the Greek word compassion, right? The, 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 The root word from which the Greek word compassion emerges is a word that literally means this. It means your entrails. Okay, It means your vital organs. So like your heart, your kidney, your liver, your spleen, your appendix, that little thing that we're not really sure why it's there, right? Your lungs, all of the central organs of your body. And so the word that the word compassion comes from originally meant these central organs to the body. And as a result, the word compassion took on a metaphorical meaning of being moved deeply within and the very center and core of our beings in the seat of our emotions and our priorities and our commitments so that we'd be moved from the inside out. Now, it's interesting to note that in Mark, this word for compassion is not used of people that one would naturally feel compassion for. Normally we would feel compassion, we'd be moved by the needs of our friends or of our family, or we'd be moved by the needs of our close associates, our compatriots. We'd be moved by the needs who are people like us, who share in our interests, our hobbies, our activities. But in Mark, those whom Jesus is moved for, who feels compassion for, are for those who are far removed from Him. They are not like Him. In fact, at times they're even offensive to His culture and His his reasonabilities, sensibilities. In fact, in, we find it in places like this in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, where Jesus has compassion on a leper who would have been ostracized from the community. Jesus is moved by his condition. We find his compassion being, being poured out upon revolutionaries in Mark 6, 34. On the Gentiles in Mark 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 2, right here. And then on a demon-possessed individual in Mark chapter 9, verse 22. And I think all of this is indicating to us that Mark's trying to show us that the compassion of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus is not reserved for those who are proud, put together, and prosperous. But the compassion of Jesus is for the broken, 
The compassion of Jesus is for the needy. The compassion of Jesus moves towards those who are broken, needy, insufficient, dependent, and they know it. They are not proud, put together, and prosperous. See, every, in every instance that Mark uses this word, listen, one final thing to see here is that Jesus' compassion, it moves him to action. He heals the leper. He teaches the revolutionaries. He feeds the Gentiles. He drives out the demon. His, so compassion essentially is this, is being moved so deeply at the very core of our being by the condition of other people that it moves us to action. That's what compassion is. And this is exactly what happens in the text. Jesus is deeply moved by the condition of the crowd and it moves him to do something about it. See, it's Jesus that notices the needs of the crowd that have been listening to his teaching for three days. It's not the disciples like in Mark chapter 6 that bring the hunger of the crowds before Jesus. Jesus looks out into the people's eyes and he sees it. It is Jesus who has compassion on them because of their physical hunger. It's Jesus that recognizes that if he sends them home hungry, some of them will not have the energy to make the trip. They'll faint on the way, the text says. It's Jesus who proceeds to provide food to fill their stomachs. See, Jesus sees the need of these people and he's so moved within that he does something. He acts on their behalf. Now listen, church, I want you to know that this is not only true in this text, but it's also true in our lives. Listen, I want you to consider the fact that there is no need in our lives that escapes the attention of Jesus and no legitimate need that He is not moved by. There's no need in your life that escapes His attention, that He is indifferent towards, that He just kind of shrugs His shoulders and says, well, good luck with that. There is no legitimate need that it doesn't move to meet in our lives. He's not indifferent toward, unaware of, or unmoved by our financial needs or our relational needs. Listen, I know that this time of quarantine has taken a financial toll on many within our community, many within our culture, thousands and perhaps millions of people across the globe. And I want you to know that Jesus is not unaware, indifferent toward, or unmoved by that need. And He's willing and able to step towards it and provide. Listen, He's also not unaware of your relational needs. This time of quarantine has also produced perhaps an acute sense of loneliness in our lives of being disconnected and cut off from relationships that we once enjoyed, of being able to hug, of being able to console and comfort in the midst of loss and tragedy, of being able to, just the simple thing of being able to shake someone's hand and feel human connection. It's created a sense of loneliness. And I want you to know that Jesus is not unaware of that and He's able to meet that through fellowship with Himself. In addition, he's not unaware of or indifferent to or unmoved by your personal and psychological needs. Listen, the depression and anxiety that has perhaps fallen over the course of your life during this pandemic. I want you to know that Jesus is able to meet you in those moments. He's able to stay your anxiety. He's able to gladden your soul. Listen, I've had the risen Christ meet me in my own seasons of depression, in my own battle with anxiety, in my own times of psychological unraveling, I've had the risen Christ show up in those moments in my own life. And I'm telling you that He is not unaware if that's where you find yourself today. Also, last but not least, He's not indifferent to, unaware of, or unmoved by your deep spiritual needs. Listen, Earlier in, the, in, in Mark chapter 7, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that what Jesus does is He presses our understanding of where our problems in this fallen world come from. They don't come from the outside in, but they come from the inside out. He says our problem, what makes us unclean, is not the things that we take into our mouths, right? The things that go in the top and come out the bottom, essentially is what Jesus says. Right? That's not what makes us unclean, but what makes us unclean is what comes out of our hearts, and I want you to know that Jesus is not unaware of the condition of your heart. Nor is He indifferent toward the condition of your heart. 
Listen, whatever you find circulating in there, whether it's lust, whether it's pride, whether it's covetousness, whether it's greed, whether it's anger, whether it's anxiety, whatever you find circulating in your heart, Jesus is not unaware of or indifferent to. In fact, he is so moved, his compassion has so moved him that he has done something about that great spiritual need that you have, that I have, that all people have. In fact, the place that you see the compassion of Jesus most demonstrated is at the cross. Because it's at the cross where Jesus is moved to act. Moved to action on the basis of our condition. He saw the unclean condition of our heart. And he, what, he, what he did was he laid his life down for us. He laid his life down for us. And nobody twisted his arm, right? Nobody held a gun to his head, but he did it willingly because he was moved by our condition. Listen, John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says it this way. He says, listen, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. You know what that means, church? That means in the midst of your deep spiritual need, those things that you cannot you, can't, you have no power to fix in your life. Some of us have had anger issues all of our lives. And we have no power to fix them. And Jesus says, listen, that makes you unclean. It leads to the eruption and the, and the destruction of relationships. And listen, because of that, I'm laying my life down for you because so, so that you could be brought back in. I will be sent out. I will be exiled so that you can come home, Jesus says. That was the ultimate demonstration of his compassion. And until you see that, listen, all of your psychological needs, all of your personal needs, all of your relational needs, and all of your financial needs, they will be but a scratch a drop in the bucket until you see the compassion of Jesus moving him to action to do something about the condition of your heart and meet your deepest spiritual need, which is for you to be reconciled to God. And he did all of that at the cross. And what Mark is teaching us here is this. Listen, that Jesus is moved by our needs. Most deep, most, he's moved most deeply by our most deep needs. And He is not unaware of any need that you find in your life today. Second thing that I think it teaches us is this, is that Jesus is able to multiply our resources. Look at the repetition. I, and and these, this one, I, I, you know, things happen over the course of a couple of days whenever I produce the sermon note handout and as the Lord continues to refine what I feel like I need to share with you. And so this is just going to be a flyover on this point. But listen, Jesus uh, multiplies our resources. The note, notice the repetition of the number seven. In verse five, when Jesus asked the disciples how many loaves of bread they had, they respond with seven. And then in verse eight, following the feeding, when they clean up, there are seven baskets full of bread left over. So for every loaf the disciples had, there are seven baskets of leftovers after 4,000 people had their fill. Now listen, that might be another sermon for another day, um, but, but I, I just want you to consider that reality is that wherever you find lack in your life, I want you to know that Jesus is able to multiply it. Be able to multiply your resources to meet the needs of others who are around you. But then the third thing I want, you to, want us to see in this text, which is more in line with where the sermon began to take shape, is this. Is that not only does Jesus move, be moved by our needs, but listen, I want you to know that He's more than enough to meet them. In verse 8, we see that for every loaf the disciples had, there was a large basket full of leftovers. And that, that they took up the broken pieces of the leftovers and they had all these baskets surrounding them full of what was left. See, church, I think oftentimes we have a tendency to, to doubt whether or not Jesus is enough to meet the real needs of our life and the felt needs of our life, right? But Mark is telling us through this story, as Jesus demonstrates, not only is he enough, but he's more than enough. Not only can he provide, but there is superabundance in his provision. 
so that there's no one who goes away from Jesus feeling like there is something that they have lost or something that they lack because they go away satisfied. Mark is holding that truth up there for us. And so I want you to know whatever need you find in your life this morning, that Jesus is his compassion, is, is, causes him to move towards it. Not away from it, not to be indifferent towards it. And listen, not only is he not indifferent, but he's also not insufficient because he has more than enough to be able to meet you where you are with what you need when you need it. So these are the, these are the truths that, Jesus, that I believe Mark's laying out for us here. And I want to spend the rest of the time this morning considering how we ought to respond to it. And there's two things that I want to say to us this morning. And the first one is this. I believe that we say from the text is this, is that in response to the fact that Jesus is moved to meet our needs and that he's more than enough to meet our needs, is that we ought to look to him, come to him to be filled. In verse 8, the text tells us, and they ate and were satisfied. And Mark aims to show us that the only hope the people have to be filled and satisfied is Jesus. Apart from his intervention, of Jesus, those people would have been sent away, they would have gone away empty and hungry. But not only does Mark, I believe, aim to show us the fact that the people go away filled with their bellies full, but also he aims to show us that Jesus is able to satisfy our true hunger. Now listen, these people were not ignorant of their situation. Okay, These people did not have takeouts or deliveries. Okay? There was, there was no Grubhub, there was no Uber Eats, there was nothing like that, okay? There were no mobile apps which you could order and go through the drive through at Chick-fil-A. Nothing like that existed. And they were aware of how to survive in that pre-modern culture, right? They were aware of whenever their food supplies had begun to run out. But listen, what, what, what do they do whenever their food begins to run out? They don't go, well... The conference is still going on, but we got to go home because we're hungry. What do they do? No, they stay three days with Jesus. And they continue to listen to Him teach. And I think what Mark wants to communicate to us is this. is Their hunger for Jesus outweighed their hunger for food. Right? There was something that they had an appetite for. That they were satisfied with apart from just having their bellies full. These people knew how to survive. They knew what they needed, and yet those needs were set upon the back burners of their life because in the front burner of their life was a flame that was burning deep and bright for what Jesus had to say. Right? And now these people, listen, they were predominantly a Gentile audience on the other side of the lake. Right? And so it's, it's not like they were super aware of Jesus prior to him showing up in their region. But when he shows up in their region, and remember last week we saw that he heals this man who was deaf and mute. And at the end of that account, what did this, does this Gentile audience say? He does everything well. They were in awe. And so they begin to follow him. And so in response to that miracle that he does of restoring the man's hearing and restoring the man's speech, there's this massive crowd that swells around him and Jesus begins to teach. And they're hanging on every word that Jesus has to say. So much so that whenever Jesus brings the conference to an end, he realizes they haven't eaten. And Mark is aiming to show us that there is something that these people hungered for more than food. Something that was filling them more than what was on a plate. Because the reality, listen, church, is that we all fill ourselves up with something. We all have deep-seated hungers in our lives, right? They go beyond the appetite, right? Last, week I threw, uh, last night I threw some, some ribs and some chicken and sausage on the grill uh, man, we had a, a, just a meat fest at the house last night. And listen, we filled our stomachs full of really good food. But listen, there is something that every single one of us hungers for more deeply than the most savory food you can possibly imagine. There are deep hungers in our lives. 
And some of us try to fill that deep hunger with things like money and possessions. Or we may try to fill it with career and entertainment. We may try to fill it with family and politics, comfort and status, achievement and accomplishments. But here's the problem. Whenever we try to fill ourselves with all of these things to satisfy those deep longings of our heart, to satisfy the deep hungers that exist in our souls. When we try to fill ourselves with those things, we leave empty because we were not created by or for any of those things. In fact, whenever you read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, the Apostle Paul writes this. I want you to consider this for a moment. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. See, what what, what Paul says is this, is that Jesus made everyone, everything and everyone was made by him, and everything and everyone was made for him. You and I were made by Jesus and you and I were made for Jesus. He is the one who designed us. So he is the one who's able to delight us. He is the one for whom we were made. And so he is the only one who is able to fully fill us. See, you were not made. I was not made for career. And guess what? Your career will not have compassion on you. It will not meet your deepest need. You and I were not designed or made for political power. We're not made for possessions. We're not made for status. We were not made for achievement. We're not made by or for any of these things. That's why whenever we seek to fill the deepest longings of our soul with any of these things, we walk away hungry because they do not truly delight us because they didn't design us, nor can they fully fill us because we weren't made for them. That's the reality. See, if you're trying to fill up on something other than Jesus, it's like trying to fill the ocean with one bucket of sand at a time. Can you imagine going down to Florida and saying, I'm going to take a Home Depot Homer bucket, a big old orange thing, and I'm going to scoop up one bucket of sand, I'm going to walk out in the Gulf of Mexico, and I'm going to dump that bucket of sand. What happens to that bucket of sand? As soon as the wave comes in and washes out, what happens? That sand just scatters. And you go take another bucket and fill it up with sand and throw it into the ocean and it just scatters. It's sucked out to sea. And that's what it's like whenever you're trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction, meet the deepest longings of your soul in something other than the one who made you and the one you were made for. It will always leave you empty. See, if we're filling up and trying to be satisfied in anything other than Jesus, it will always leave us empty. So how is it that we move to be filled in Him? Listen, this is our default to find something else to plug into our souls to fill us and to satisfy us. So how do we move toward being filled up and satisfied in Jesus? Listen, church, I want you to hear this well this morning, that they way that we take a step toward doing that. Listen, this isn't going to be on the screen, but write it down, all right, if you're a note taker. Um, the, the way that we, we are moved to being filled and satisfied by Jesus is to move from just data about Jesus to delight in Jesus. From information to sensation. Let me see if I can break it down for you this way. Listen, it's possible to have a plate of food in front of you with all kinds of things you have never placed on your palate, but you've heard other people describe them, right? So you hear other people describe them as sweet or savory or tart or bitter or sour or spicy. But it's quite another thing to taste them for yourself. Listen, you can study. We have several folks in our church who keep bees, Okay. Um, for the honey. So they can get an ag exemption. I think that's probably the primary reason. Uh, They have to pay all the property taxes. But they keep bees. And listen, you can study all the chemical properties of honey. You can know how bees make it. You can know how keepers harvest it. But you could have never tasted the sweetness for yourself. You can know that honey is composed of carbohydrates like fructose, glucose, sucrose, maltose, isomaltose, maltulose, and others. 
right? You can have all the enzymes, amino acids, the vitamins, the minerals, the antioxidants like riboflavin and niacin and folic acid and pantothenic authentic acid and B6 and magnesium and selenium and chromium and manganese and phosphorus and zinc and iron. You can know all these things that are in honey, the chemical composition of it. It's one thing to know all the ingredients and affirm the fact that this list of ingredients is right and true and even discuss its properties with other people. And it's another thing to taste the sweetness of honey. Those are two different things. So when the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. He's not saying, hey, listen, let's break down the chemical composition of honey. Let me give you some information and data. No, the psalmist is saying, I delight in your words, O God. I delight in them. There's a sensation that I experience on the tongue of my soul whenever I read them. Or when the psalmist says in Psalm 63, verses 3 to 5, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. See, when you read this carefully, what you realize is that David is doing more than delivering information about God's love like a scientist or an engineer. No offense. But David is delighting in God's love like someone who is savoring a great meal. That's the kind of experience that true Christianity produces in your life. See, if you've got a collection of data in your head or information in your mind, right, that, that's just kind of cold and calculated, but there is no sweetness whenever you think of God. There is no sweetness whenever you come to His Word. It does not delight you. It doesn't, you don't savor it. It doesn't satisfy you. Listen, that is, that is not the experience of true Christianity. Now, you could be offended by that, or it could cause you to search your heart and say, God, have I really been converted? Have I really come to be filled and satisfied by what Jesus provides, by what Jesus gives? So as the crowd in verse 8, when, they, when, 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 when Jesus is done feeding them, that they all ate and were satisfied. Now listen, how does this work? Let me, let me tell you how this works. You have to take it in and you've got to pray it down. Right? You've got to take it in and pray it down. I, I've used this illustration before, but listen, you and I, we, we can stack all the wood that we want. Right? And there is, there, there's nothing wrong with having information. There's nothing wrong with, with accumulating data about Jesus and about God and about the Scriptures. You want to fill your life with all those things. Right? But listen, you can take it in, but you've got to pray it down. Right? Because you can stack all the wood that you like. You have all the logs in, in a row, right? You can, you can have the little teepee built in the fire pit with a stone ring around it. And you can have kindling down there in the bottom. But you know what you and I are incapable of doing? We're incapable of lighting the fire. Only God is able to do that. And so as you take in all this information, as you take in all this data, you've got to begin to pray it down and ask God that He would send fire to... Turn this wood into flame in your life that whenever you taste God's word, it would be sweet. Your soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. So you take it in and pray it down. God, I'm stacking wood. I'm stacking wood. I'm stacking wood. I'm reading the scriptures. And when I read the scriptures, I'm not only looking for, hey, how do I fix my marriage? I'm not only looking for, hey, how do I raise my kids? I'm not only looking for, hey, how do I do all these practical things in my life? But I'm looking for evidences of what God has done, not just what I should do. But what has God done? Out of His compassion, how has He been moved to action? On my account, on my behalf. And then I'm praying, God, would you, out of this big picture that you've given me of yourself and what you've done for me, would you cause there to be a flame in my heart? I've been stacking wood, God. Would you light the fire? And listen, the same is true in the lives of your kids. Those of your parents. You can stack wood around the dinner table every night. You can stack wood 
around at bedtime every evening. You can stack wood in, in, in the sermon discussion guides that we're producing and perhaps some of you are utilizing in your home, but only God is able to light the fire and satisfy the deepest longing of their hearts so that achievements in athletics no longer is the thing that they are most satisfied with, so that achievements in the classroom is no longer the thing that they're most filled by. Only God can light that fire. So listen, church, in response to the compassion of Jesus and the fact that He's more than enough to meet every need, come to Him to be filled. And He will. He can. He's more than enough, super abundant. Second thing that I would say in response to the truths in this text is this, not only to be filled, but to be free. To be free. You see, when we fill up on sugary and hollow substitutes in our lives, one of the things it does is it diminishes our hunger for God Himself. See, if you're fed by poor quality material, it will take more and more junk to fill you up. Right? We recognize this physically, okay? So if you sit down and you eat a well-balanced meal, you eat some, right, you, some of you, I know some of you are like pescatarian, vegetarian, vegan, you got all these t- types of diets and Listen, more, more power to you. I, I, I respect that. But listen, uh, so you eat some protein, whether it's plant-based or animal-based. All right, let me say it that way. You eat some protein, and you have a little bit of carbs, you have some fat, you have a little bit of uh, natural sugars through some fruit and some fiber through some leafy vegetables. You eat a balanced meal. And you know what it does? It provides your body the nutrients that you need, and it fills you, and it's able to sustain you throughout the day and give you energy. However, if you're meal consists of potato chips, right? And then you wash it down with sugary soda, and then you finish it off with uh, Skittles for dessert, okay? And you just fill up on hollow and empty calories. You know what happens? I see it all the time in my children, is that 30 minutes later, you know what they are saying? I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Can I have a snack? Can I get something else to eat? Why? Because they are filling their body on with less than sufficient nutrients. And whenever you're fed by poor quality material, it takes more and more junk to fill you up. It's the law of diminishing returns, right? So that the amount it takes to fill you today will be insufficient to fill you tomorrow. The amount it takes you to fill you tomorrow will be insufficient to fill you next week. The amount it takes to fill you next week will be insufficient next month or next year because you'll always need more and more and more of that insufficient material to fill you up. And so what happens, listen, is that you end up serving or being enslaved to whatever you're seeking satisfaction from. This is why people experience, uh, or, or let me say, some people experience the challenge of obesity, right? Because food has become the thing they're trying to medicate the deep needs of their soul with. And so they eat, and they eat, and whenever they're done with one meal, all they can think about is what they're going to have for the next meal. When they're done with that meal, all they can think about is what they're going to have for the next meal. And so in obesity, they become enslaved to food. Or they become enslaved. They become enslaved to possessions because this particular thing that I just bought is not enough for me next week. And so the next thing that I've got on my agenda, this after I make this purchase, this is what I, I'm going to buy next. And this is what I'm going to buy. And so week to week, year to year, they accumulate stuff. Or they become enslaved to experiences. They become enslaved right, to power. They become enslaved to comfort. See, whatever you're seeking satisfaction from, whatever you're trying to fill the deep longings of your soul with, you will serve or become enslaved to. Except with Jesus. Oh, no, no, you will serve Him. But through that service, you will be set free. Look at the text with me for a moment. In verse 9, it says, there were about 4,000 people who were gathered there. And then Mark says, and He sent them away. Now, the word for send away in verse 9 can either mean to dismiss and get rid of, right? Which is the, the typical response that we have toward needy people, right? Get them away from me. Or it can mean to release 
to liberate, to set free. And I believe what Mark is trying to show us is this, that when you come to Jesus to be filled, you leave free. When you come to Jesus to meet the deepest longings of your heart and of your soul, you build your identity around Him, not around the possessions that you have. You build your identity around Him, not around the accomplishments that you've achieved. You build your identity around Him, not around the money that you make or the 401k that you have or the, 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 the family that you've constructed. But you build your identity around Him. And whenever you come to Him to be filled, you will leave free. But in our culture, listen, our culture doesn't see things that way. They see coming to Jesus to be filled. To them, it's in our, people in our culture, it seems like enslavement. It seems like enslavement. But Jesus says it's actually the path. Mark says it's actually the path to freedom. So if you want to be free, you'll be enslaved to anything else that you try to fill your life with that did not make you and you were not made for. But whenever you fill your life with the one that made you and the one you were made for, then you experience a freedom of living for what you were made to do, which is honoring and glorifying and serving God through His Son by His Holy Spirit. The culture doesn't see things that way, but this is how the Scriptures present them. Let me see if I can break it down for you like this. Listen, in, in the, the final installment of C.S. Lewis's uh, epic series, The Chronicles of Narnia, in the book called The Last Battle. I've used this illustration before, so some of you may be familiar with it, but there's a character called Tyrion, and as Tyrion engages as part of the army in this great battle that's unfolding in the, in the countryside, he sees behind him, up on the hill, a small little wooden stable with a thatched roof. And so there's nothing else for miles around in which they could take shelter. And so he and several others flee to this little stable to try to find shelter from the battle that's raging around them. And as they enter into this little small stable, listen to how Lewis records the experience that they have as they go in. It says Tyrion had thought or would have thought if he had time to think at all that they were inside a little thatched stable about 12 feet long and 6 feet wide. But in reality, they stood on grass. The deep blue sky was overhead, and the air which blew gently on their faces was that of a day in early summer. Not far away from them rose a grove of trees, thickly leaved, but under every leaf there peeped out the gold or faint yellow or purple or glowing red of fruits such as no one has seen in our world. The fruit made Tyrion feel that it must be autumn, but there was something in the feel of the air that told him it could be no later than June. They all moved towards the trees. Everyone raised his hand to pick the fruit he liked best, the look of, and then everyone paused for a second. The fruit was so beautiful that each felt, it can't be meant for me. Surely we're not allowed to pluck this. It's all right, said Peter. I know what we're all thinking, but I'm sure, quite sure, we needn't think it. I have a feeling that we've got to the country where everything is allowed. What was the fruit like? Unfortunately, no one can describe a taste. All I can say is that compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull, and the juiciest orange was dry, and the most melting pear was hard and woody, and the wildest strawberry was sour, and there were no seeds or stones to get in the way, or no wasps. If you had eaten once of that fruit, all the nicest things in this world would taste like medicines after it. But I can't describe it. You can't find out what it's like unless you can get to that country and taste it for yourself. And then Lewis pulls out of the direct dialogue and he says, as Tyrion explores this fascinating country for himself, he sees a small rough wooden door and around it was the framework of a doorway with no walls, no roof, nothing else. As he walked around the door, he stood amazed by how the door just stood there. And when he peeked through the crack between the wooden planks, he saw the darkness of the outside world and the battle raging on. Then he looked round again and could hardly believe his eyes. There was blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction. And his new friends all around him laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. 
Yes, said Lord Didgeri, its inside is bigger than its outside. Its inside is bigger than its outside. See, the world looks at this invitation to come to Jesus and be filled by ordering our lives in such a way that we are living to do what we were designed to do and bringing God glory through serving Him by, through His Son and by His Spirit. They see that as enslavement. They see that as the thing that will, that will keep them in bondage. Right? They're looking at it from the outside, but whenever you get on the inside, all of a sudden you realize that there's a fruit here that's sweeter than anything I've ever tasted in this world. There's expansive country that's more beautiful than anything I've ever laid eyes on in this world. It is far more satisfying and enriching and fulfilling to be in the stable than outside of it. And all of a sudden, as you begin to, when you walk through those doors and you look back through the wooden planks and you see outside and you see the darkness of the world around you and the battle as it continues to rage on and all of the heartache and hardship and then you turn again and see the inside of the stable and you rejoice. You rejoice. You're savoring the fact that the stable seen from within is a far different place than the stable seen from without. And that coming through that door Coming through that door, yes, there is a servitude. Yes, there is service. But listen, as you walk through that door, you walk from a place of enslavement and bondage into a place of freedom. That's what freedom actually feels like, Jesus says. And Jesus, Mark tells us essentially that what feels like enslavement in our culture is actually freedom. And what feels like freedom in our culture is actually enslavement. Consider a few ways that works. In our culture, what looks and feels like freedom is unhinged sexual expression. To be able to have sexual encounters with no attachment, right? To have uh, the sexual uh, images wallpapering our lives. And what feels like enslavement is limiting our sexual expression to our husband or our wife in a lifelong union between a man and a woman. But Jesus says, hey, listen, that's actually freedom a freedom in which you can find intimacy and acceptance, not having to continue to perform and wonder if you're going to be sufficient or good enough. See, in our culture, what looks and feels like freedom is flexible truth. Being able to interchange masks from context to context and always paint ourselves in the best light. And, and what feels like enslavement, what feels like bondage in our culture are the initial pangs of honesty and truthfulness, even and especially when it's not flattering to us. See, what feels like freedom, what feel, and listen, I, for one, have experienced this. What feels like freedom, right, is to keep a mask and to conceal and to shift. But what is actually, that's actually enslavement because you are always terrified of being found out and you're enslaved. But what is actually freedom, no matter how bad it hurts, is honesty and truthfulness. In our culture, what looks and feels like freedom is the accumulation of money and the acquisition of possessions. And what looks and feels like enslavement is saying no to ourselves through fasting in a simple life. See, what feels like enslavement is to scale back. That feels like we're in bondage. It's actually freedom because we don't have the anxiety any longer over what we have, what we don't have, and what we do have trying to keep it. There's freedom in that. Because inside, it's far different than outside. And so how do we experience this freedom? Listen, church, this isn't on the notes either, but let me just encourage you. Feast on Jesus. Feast on Him. And the way that you feast on Him is by ordering your life around Him. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, we see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us, He says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then everything, all these things that you're worried about, all the things that you feel like you need, all the things, all these things will be added to you. Right? Seek first His kingdom. What does it mean to seek first His kingdom? It means to submit yourself to His rule in your life. It means to submit yourself to His reign in your life. It means to say that, God, you're the one calling the shots, and so I'm going to submit to your truth 
I'm going to submit to your rule. I'm going to order my life around you in such a way that whenever my, my desires come in conflict with your design, I'm going to yield to your design and I'm going to say no to my desires. I'm going to feast on you and I'm going to believe by faith, even when it doesn't feel like that this is the path to freedom, I'm going to yield to your design and say no to my desires so that I can put my feet on the path of freedom, even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when it feels like being obedient to you is going to cause friction and hardship and conflict and it's going to bring about pain, I'm going to set my feet on that path and I'm going to follow you. Because I'm going to feast on you and believe that whatever I lose in this world, that you are more satisfying than it, that you can fill me. Because you who did not sit back with indifference whenever you looked upon my life and saw my greatest need. I believe that you will not sit back and look upon my, any other need in my life with indifference. But you, by your compassion, will be moved to action. And I know that when you're moved to action, it is super abundant and more than enough. So be free, church. By being filled. Because those two things always in our lives go hand in hand. Either I will come to Jesus to be filled by taking it in, praying it down, delighting in Him, savoring Him, having a sweet experience, not just a cerebral one. And as I do, I'll experience more and more freedom. Or the option is to continue to look to money and possessions and career and politics and family and status and comfort and achievements and all the pleasures of this world and and to continue to devolve into more and more and more and more bondage. So the choice is ours. Will you come to Christ and be filled? Or will you look to anything other than the one by whom you were made and for whom you were made and walk away empty? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the morning. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word together. We thank you for the fact that your mercies are new today in our lives. And I pray that they would be new in the life of everyone who is tuned into this stream, that they would experience you afresh today. I pray for myself, God, that these truths... Because you know, God, I'm preaching to myself perhaps more than I'm preaching to any other person who is sitting on the other side of a screen this morning. So, Father, would you make these things a reality in me? Help me to feast on you, to be free. Father, help me to be filled in Christ, to be satisfied in Him, and not to look to any other bucket of sand that I would try to fill my life with only to find it being scattered to the sea and diluted. Father, would you bring freedom in our lives as we look to Christ to be satisfied? As we sing together, would you take these truths and help us to savor them, to find their sweetness, to delight in them as we respond? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.